Well, hello, everyone. My name is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky nestled in the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is Monday, July 10th, 2023, and this is our second podcast of the day. And I've been looking forward to this one for a long, long time. We've had to reschedule a couple of times because of some scheduling issues on my end and also because of the flooding uh, issue that we had here at our house and, and ministry office. Um, but uh, tonight we're going to be doing a theological roundtable with a group of uh, believers from Grand Forks, North Dakota. It's a ladies' Bible study group. I'm told there's more than 20 or so in the room. We're uh, communicating by Zoom, even though we're just posting the audio of this. And I can't see all of them, but I'm taking it on faith that there are uh, several ladies that are not on camera there. But uh, really looking forward to this. I know it's always a, a great time to just dive into the Word and, and talk about all kinds of theological subjects. Uh, now, before we begin, let me mention a couple of quick announcements here from NBW Ministries. First of all, if you haven't listened to this morning's podcast with Leo Homan, that is a must listen. So mark that one down. Take the time to go back and listen to it. We talked about how close are we to the one world system and really enjoyed that time with uh, Leo. It was like drinking from a fire hydrant. He's just an outstanding investigative reporter and journalist and just uh, uh, really appreciated him taking the time to come on the show. Uh, full week ahead. Tuesday night is Prophecy Night from Plum Creek Chapel in the Denver metro area. That'll be live streamed at six o'clock. I'm going to be talking about some of the geopolitical events that have been happening lately and how that's setting the stage for uh, the return of the Lord. Wednesday will be our regular world events update with Randy. Uh, Thursday, I've got uh, Brad Maston back on, and we're going to be talking about a kingdom like no other, life in the millennium. What will life be like in the millennium? And then we'll close out the week Friday with my a good friend and technology expert, Shane, to, to, to give us a technology update on AI and, and those uh, kinds of things. But uh, for tonight, for the rest of our time, we're just going to be uh, talking about a variety of uh, biblical and theological uh, questions and current events and all kinds of stuff. So I'm going to introduce uh, Peggy, I'm sorry, Jana, who uh, is the one who kind of set this up. I've had the chance to get to know uh, her a few times at different conferences. And uh, so, Jana, thanks so much for inviting me here into uh, you guys. Uh, where are we anyway, at the church or somebody's home? We are, we are at the Women's Pregnancy Center. One of our members, Jill, who is in charge of our technology, is a director here at the Women's Pregnancy Center. Oh, so wonderful. She, She's yeah. part of our group. Um, actually, we normally have about 14 from around town, and we don't go to all the same church. We're from different churches, maybe five different churches at least represented here. And uh, we found each other because we love prophecy and we love uh, studying the end times, and we like to listen to our favorite podcasters. <laughs> and you're one of them. And thank you. Wait, so wait, much. wait, wait, wait. I'm one of them. Wait a minute. All right, you're not getting off to a very good start here. I thought I was uh, the only one, but that's all right. That'll knock me down off my high horse a little bit. For Dr. X. Yeah. And our person that normally hosts us is Renee, and so we are very thankful for her. Mm -hmm. And then Peggy is our um, Bible study leader, and we've been studying the days of Noah lately. So we have lots of questions mm -hmm. for you. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thanks again. And thanks, Jill, also for helping uh, to set this up. I know technology can be uh, kind of a pain, but uh, thank the Lord that we have it so that we can do things like this. 
All right, Peggy. Oh, Janice got the first question. Okay. I got a lot of questions. <laughs> I'm kind of like Jody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Please explain the concept of the Luciferian conspiracy and how is it is at work in the world today. Yeah, so that's a pretty easy one for me because it's kind of been my my central focus and central motif in all of my teaching and writing for about 16, 17 years now. Um, so the Luciferian conspiracy uh, essentially is what the Bible describes as the uh, conspiracy of Satan, his evil spirits, and human counterparts working together to try to take over the world. Uh, a conspiracy, of course, is very biblical. We see lots of examples of that in the scriptures, as I talk about in my two-volume set. Uh, conspiracy is just two or more people working together to do something illegal or uh, nefarious, uh, doing something in secret to try to plot or plan to do something bad. And so Satan's been plotting to take over the world and defeat God ever since he got kicked out of heaven. He's using his fallen angels and other demonic uh, spirits and things, uh, along with human uh, accomplices. And so uh, they call themselves Luciferians. That is the term for uh, the grand conspiracy. Sometimes you'll hear it called, you know, the global elite or the deep state or the unseen hand. There are a lot of different terms through the years that uh, researchers have used to describe it. But the best term and the biblical term is Luciferians. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that's the conspiracy. And it, it encompasses a wide range of subjects and areas uh, that all of which I kind of talk about in the two-volume series, but uh, nothing is as it seems. There's always a spiritual battle going on, and and Satan is working uh, behind the scenes, largely in the unseen realm, to orchestrate things in the seen realm uh, to to kind of advance us toward uh, the one world system. Okay, so I talking still about the the uh, Luciferian conspiracy, how does that relate then towards using more and more of AI and then talk then a bit about this new Bible and the Jesus that they're uh, advancing with uh, becoming, uh, could it be the, the false religion that's coming and um, maybe a one world religion of that paganism type form or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so AI, we've talked a lot about that recently here on our different podcasts, uh, some with Shane and some with Randy in our World Events Update. Um, you know, the, the Satan cannot create life. You know, he's not God. He cannot create life ex nihilo, out of nothing, the way God did. God spoke uh, the world into existence. He created time, space, and matter, and his highest pinnacle of creation is mankind. And so that's why Satan hates uh, you and me. He, he hates mankind because we were made in the image of God. And when he sees us, he sees, especially once we've been restored in our relationship with God by grace through faith, he sees uh, God. And so he wants to destroy mankind. Jesus said he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Uh, and Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. Uh, Peter said we should be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, is seeking to de devour people. So uh, the way he's trying to do that is what's called transhumanism. That's part of the Luciferian agenda, a huge part of it, uh, because they want to transcend humanity and create something that they perceive is better. They, they want to uh, marginalize humanity, make us seem like we're nothing. And as Yuval Noah Harari says, we're just, you know, hackable animals. We're just algorithms, you know, and, and we're useless and unnecessary. Harari recently said that the vast majority of human beings are 
unnecessary. We don't need them. Uh, so they just th see us as just getting in the way, useless breathers. Uh, and so they do that to because they want to be sort of in your face to God, the almighty creator of the universe. Uh, so they're, they're simultaneously trying to destroy humanity while create their own artificial intelligence or artificial humanity uh, that they think will be better uh, than uh, than mankind. Now, no matter what the Luciferians come up with, it will not come anywhere close to what God created. It will not have a soul. It will not be made in the image of God. Uh, it will never become uh, conscious in the way that mankind is. Uh, we talked about that last week on my podcast on Friday, the whole idea of sentience and, and can artificial intelligence kind of truly transcend humanity and become autonomous. Uh, they'll never be able to do that. And so, but that doesn't stop Satan from trying. And artificial intelligence is definitely a, a formidable foe uh, because they can do so much with it. You know, they can, um, it's not just about what we call embodiment or creating uh, robots that look like you and me, they look fully human. Uh, it's not just about that. It's about using AI type technology, like as you mentioned, chat GPT uh, to to really get rid of jobs, to get rid of all the functions that uh, we're used to having. Uh, you mentioned the AI Jesus. There, There is one out there already, and thousands upon thousands of young people are flocking to that uh, app, you know, that app on their smartphones to have what they believe to be conversations uh, with Jesus. As far as the one world religion, I don't think that uh, AI will, will be the sum total of the one world religion. I mean, it it will play a role because they will use it to uh, to do things like the image of the beast that's talked about in Revelation when when the Antichrist needs to be in more than one place at a time, which he cannot do. He will create these uh, AI replications of himself uh, so that he can kind of be worshipped in various places throughout the world. Uh, much like ancient Near Eastern kings used to create physical brick-and-mortar statues and stone statues of themselves. I think they'll use AI for that. But the ultimate religion that will take place during the, uh, you know, the, the end times, during the tribulation, will be uh, pluralism. It'll be basically a one-world religion where all religions come under one tent, and uh, there's no one right or wrong way. Uh, and, you know, everyone's going to be convinced that, you know, whether you're Muslim, Catholic, Jewish, Christian, whatever, that, you know, they're all the same. Um, Daniel 12 tells us that the future Antichrist will deny the gods of his fathers. Uh, he's not going to be allegiant to any one religion. He's going to bring everybody together under one. Okay. Um, moving into another topic of UFOs. Uh, Jan Markell, late, uh, just not so long ago, was talking about how the sighting of aliens in Las Vegas could be something to do with the second greatest satanic holiday. Would you agree? And what are your thoughts on the UFO and uh, possible explaining of the rapture? Uh, yeah. So first of all, Jan Markell is a, a great uh, friend and uh, of this ministry. She's been a real blessing to NBW Ministries, but uh, we've had the chance to be on there two or three times. And every time we're on it, it's it's really, uh, I think four times actually that she's aired our interviews. Uh, and it's always, you know, a blessing because she's got a great uh, audience and it, it exposes our ministry to a broader audience. So we really appreciate all that she's doing. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, I would agree that certainly May 1st, May Day, as it's called, uh, is, a lot of people don't know this, but it really is a satanic holiday. It, it, it goes all the way back to Greek mythology, uh, you know, worshiping uh, Moloch and Baal in the ancient Near East, even before uh, the, the Greeks. Um, you know, it is from the satanic perspective, you know, Wiccan and the Satanists and the, the ultimately the Luciferians, which are the broad term for all of them. It is one of their favorite holidays. Now, I don't necessarily think that there was any connection between that date, May 1st, and the sighting of that UFO in Las Vegas. I, I've been somewhat of a ufologist for 15, 20 years, even before it was uh, really fashionable to talk about it. Um, but I believe, as I explain in, in chapters 9 and 10 of volume 2 of my Spirit of the Antichrist books, uh, it's all dimensional, it's all spiritual, demonic. Um, and I, I happen to know um, one of the reporters, not not well, but I've interacted with him multiple times and followed his career uh, for many, many years, uh, George Knapp, uh, who reported on this. And he talked to the families that saw these creatures in their backyard, and he assures uh, his audience anyway that they have no, there's no indication that they're lying or making it up. And if you listen to the 911 calls, it's pretty clear that they were really uh, uh, worried and, and freaked out about what they saw. So to me, that's just one of literally thousands of examples um, over the years of uh, sightings of both not only unidentified flying objects, but actual creatures. And again, I get into this in, in uh, chapter nine of uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, volume two, but it started in 1947. Uh, with uh, the, the dawn of the modern UFO period. Of course, if you do the research, you know that UFOs have been around for centuries uh, longer, even going back into ancient times. And that's because they're spiritual. They are manifestations of uh, evil spirits in the celestial realm. And ever since 1947, we've seen a massive upsurge in those sightings, so much so that the government secretly tracked them for seven decades and denied it the whole time. But they were tracking it through multiple programs like Project Blue Book. Um, and uh, because they were concerned that these things were showing up and they had no idea what they were. Um, and so they simultaneously were studying them while at the same time creating a false narrative that anybody who believed in them was a tinfoil hat nutcase, you know. Um, and so, but what has happened, I believe, and this is the case that I make in the book, is that uh, the reason we saw such an upsurge starting after World War II is that Satan, who's not omniscient and he's not omnipresent, he nevertheless saw what was happening on the earth. And at the end of World War II, he sent out his reconnaissance demons to kind of check out what's going on. And he discovered that Israel was back in the news again, and that they were talking about giving Israel a homeland again, where they had not had a, a nation for 1,800 years, since really since 70 AD. And, and he knows the Bible better than most Christians. He just doesn't believe it. And he certainly knows that according to God's plan, Israel plays a central role in the final phase of the plan leading up to Armageddon. So when he heard all of this talk about Israel becoming a nation— he kicked his demonic forces into high gear, and they started doing more research. They started showing up, messing with things within the realm of time, space, and matter. And that's why I believe we have you know events like Roswell and the uh, the uh, one in Washington that I talk about there in 1947. They were about ten days apart. Um, 
Mount Rainier. Uh, so, uh, and then it just got worse and worse and worse. And then what happened in, in 2017 is it got so, and this is one of the big signs of the times that I believe, you know, shows us that we're getting ever so close to the rapture. Can't set a date, but, you know, Jesus tells us to look at the signs of the times. And there have been so mu so much of a massive increase in the number of sightings and interactions and things with our military and at our nuclear facilities that finally they they just had to come right out and admit it. And that's what happened December 16, 2017, with the uh, now famous uh, New York Times uh, article that kind of uh, blew the lid wide open on all this. And that open on all this. And that was, whoops, that was uh, six years that ago. That was uh, six years uh, we're getting some feedback there. Sorry. Are you guys hearing that? Okay. Can you still hear me? Okay. Okay. So, so they, uh, that was six years ago. And then now, of course, the government has come out and admitted, yes, in fact, they have been studying it for, uh, you know, 70 years and they now have, you know, uh, they've been doing it with black budget money, but now they've come right out and 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 started funding the UAP task force. They they've changed the name of that from what used to be unidentified aerial phenomena. Just recently, it changed to unidentified anomalous phenomena because they're researching uh, things that are showing up in the sea under underneath the water. Um, and uh, so anyway, now yeah, they're they're talking about it. They had the first uh, congre open congressional hearings about. UFOs in over 50 years recently, and they started the Space Force. I believe that was centrally related to these these unidentified phenomena. Um, in fact, I talked to a guy, I mentioned this in the book, that worked for the Space Force pretty high up, and he admitted that, yeah, it's, it's largely about these creatures that they don't know what they are. Now, the government, a lot of them are claiming that these are little green men from another planet, and they're talking about it in terms of an alien invasion. invasion. Those of us that believe the Bible uh, know that that's not the case. These are not uh, aliens from another planet. They are demonic manifestations. And so, so back to your question, you know, I would say uh, I would agree with Jan that certainly May 1st is a satanic holiday, at least from their perspective. Uh, but I don't think there's any connection between the sighting that we saw in Vegas of these 10 foot tall, you know, creatures uh, and that particular date. Okay. All righty. Um, uh, several of us listened to the podcast with Leo Holman, and uh, which was really, really good. Um, so a uh, question that we had was, how can we prepare for the collapse of the economy and the introduction of the CBDCs and a digital ID, Fed now, all of that stuff? What, and I know you're adamant, do not take, do not take. And I, I totally agree with you. I actually, several of us have gone to different banks in our area and they all pretty much say nothing's going to happen. <laughs> and I kind of feel like when we, whenever we leave after we've had that conversation, uh, we are kind of out there. People at the banks, I know they look at me a little differently now when I've asked those things. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? I did copy off and I see that you have on your uh, website, the preparedness, preparedness list, and that's very thorough, very good. Um, any thoughts on after you've talked now with Leo Holman on what you would say on that? 
something? Yeah, that's a great question. I always like the opportunity to kind of uh, help people think through this because it's a key part of the coming one world system, politically, religiously, and economically. Uh, and uh, we've been talking at preparedness conferences and preparedness uh, expos and things for 15 years. Uh, and we've certainly practiced preparedness uh, for longer than that. So uh, first of all, for those who are listening to the podcast, um, I do want to make sure you know that you can go to notbyworks.org on the main menu there on the left side of the homepage. If you click on resources underneath that, you'll see a link to download the PDF of our 12-page uh, preparedness guide. And uh, it really helps you think through a number of things. It helps you think through various scenarios that could happen, uh, as well as the types of things that you need to have you know, on hand in the event of some type of uh, crisis, not just food, but other types of supplies. So back to the digital ID, I've been saying for, for a long time now, uh, over a year, that I don't think we're going to see the time when they put a gun to your head and force you to sign up for the global digital ID uh, under threat of death. Uh, I just don't think they're going to have to do that. I think, as we saw with the uh, pandemic and all of the tyrannical uh, draconian measures that were rolled out in connection with that, uh, most people will roll over and, and do it. Uh, fear is a pretty powerful motivator. Uh, that's why I'm encouraging people to think now about the ramifications so that you're not caught like a deer in the headlights uh, in the moment when something does happen. Um, it, as as Leo said, and by the way, thanks for listening to that podcast. It was a is a great one. It was one of my favorites in a long time, and and I hope to have him back on because we're so like minded on, you know this this concept of where things are headed. Um, but like he said, it's not an easy thing to prepare for. So it, it's not something that there's an, a quick fix for. The easiest thing to do, uh, or to at least conceptualize doing, is to make sure that you don't need the government. Uh, in a crisis. You want to be self-sufficient. And, you know, I've encouraged people to train up their kids in that way. And, you know, uh, we've tried to do that with our kids, uh, you know, teach them to be self-sufficient. You know, the government, and especially the compulsory government schooling system, has tried to train kids uh, in a pack mentality to just think in, in, a, in a groupthink concept. You know, for example, uh, you know, they train them in public schools, if a if a shooter uh, comes into the school, uh, you want to huddle all together in the corner of the room, which is absolutely absurd. All that does is make for an easier target for that you know shooter. Uh, we want to train kids. If a shooter comes into the school, you rush that shooter, and and you might die, but you'll save the rest of the kids in your class. Think for yourself. Be self sufficient. Uh, you know, as I've said many times, uh, when when uh, seconds count, remember. Uh, the police are minutes away. And so, you know, if your first instinct is to call 911, uh, you know, you might have to call 911 and you should if you're in a crisis, but uh, you also want to be able to take take matters into your own hands and help yourself. Don't rely on someone else to help you. Um, so to that end, I would say, you know, make sure you've got food, make sure you've got water, make sure you've got shelter. And so you have to think about, you know, you guys are kind of like Coloradans, we have to think about heat. You know, if if we couldn't turn on our furnace and we didn't have fuel for our heaters and electricity, 
could we survive the winter? So that means, you know, blankets and layers and layers of stuff to, to be able to, to shelter in place if you need to. Uh, in some places like Phoenix, uh, where my daughter lives and goes to school, uh, it, it means being, you know, having fans or having some shade or something uh, in the event of extreme heat. Um, so you need to think about shelter. And then, of course, you need to think about personal protection, because in a crisis, that's when people go crazy, as someone has said, when people lose everything, they lose it and they go crazy. And so you might have to defend yourself against marauding uh, mobs who are coming in to take not only your food, but your life if if they need to. Uh, so the to help you understand the, the digital currency concept, the digital currency, and I thought Leo did a good job of, of explaining this, and, I, and I've said things similar for months now. The digital currency is just one facet of a broader digital control grid. So it starts with the digital ID, and then digital money is one spoke on that wheel. Uh, digital medical, you know, uh, services and digital, uh, you know, travel guy uh, guard uh, cards and things like that. So they start with one central digital number or ID, and then you have to use that to for transactions financially to get help medically to travel across certain state lines and things like that and one of the things that i was hoping to mention in my discussion with leo earlier today and i just just didn't get to it um i wrote it down as he was talking but we never came back to it is right now we're seeing a variety of different things happening all at once and not just in america but globally as it relates to technology and the digital system and as he mentioned a lot of that's to distract us from what's really happening but if you could kind of picture it like you're putting out um christmas lights and you know you might put out some over here and some over here and you're kind of connecting them at, but eventually they all kind of will connect to back to one central power strip or whatever you plug them into. And along the way, you might plug one of them in to make sure they work. You know, are these, is this little section working? Okay, great. Then I'm going to continue on and connect some more lights over here. And then you check that out and it's working. And then eventually when you got them all in place, then you plug in the master switch and they all light up. Well, that's kind of what's going to happen with this digital ID. Uh, right now it's you know, it, it's it's uh, centralized, you know, locally and in, in, in with national governments. You know, India, for example, has the Adhar system. Uh, United States has the what they call the driver's license, but it's actually a national ID card. Um, and then, you know, other places have certain things. Different banks are using different digital things. You had different companies creating apps for the so-called vaccine passports. All of those things are just sort of dry runs, just conditioning us. But at some point, when they're ready to roll it out, they're going to connect all of them together. And that's easy to do from a technology standpoint. Uh, once it's server-based and cloud-based, it's just a matter of connecting them. Uh, so uh, that's what I think we need to watch for. Um, I, As you said, you know, I've said we should not take it. I think once you sign up for the the global ID card when it comes around, if we're still here, if the rapture hasn't happened, uh, then you've pretty much, you know, given up any hope of of staying off the grid. Uh, and and that's what we're going to have to do is, is when this, if things go the way they're going and the Lord doesn't come back soon, 
we're going to have to be, you know, smarter than they are. You're never going to be able to, you know, defeat the mightiest military in the world. So you're going to have to outsmart them and just lay low. Don't call attention to yourself. Um, you know, you you can do it. It can be done. People have done it. You can live off the grid. Uh, it's not going to be easy, and they're making it harder and harder. But you can do it. Okay. Anybody have anything else on current event? Anyone? No. Well, okay. Janet's got some. Um, moving on to theology. If no one else has a current event question, um, kind of a complicated question. Since salvation has always been through faith alone, what did the saints of the Old Testament, including Adam, Job, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and so on, have to believe in order to be saved? Had the elements of save, saving faith change with the changes in dispensations. What did Job believe about his Redeemer, and what was Simeon waiting for? <laughs> so, well, you kind of threw that last one in there out of, out of left field. Um, so I'm looking for a quote here. Uh, hopefully I can find it and talk at the same time that I gave in my book, uh, 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 Getting the Gospel Wrong, um, because Ryrie has a fantastic uh, uh, quote that explains the what we call the content of saving faith. So let's take your first question first. The the means of salvation in every age from Adam forward is always faith. That's the only way anyone can be justified and declared righteous before a holy God is by faith. Obviously, faith by definition has to have an object, right? Uh, it's not faith in anything that will save you. It's faith in the right object. Um, you know, as I've said many times, a, a Muslim's belief in the five pillars of the Islamic faith to get him to paradise that's faith. I mean, faith just means trust or confidence in something. But that faith will not get him to heaven, obviously, because that object is not what it takes to be saved. Uh, today, the object of saving faith is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again to pay our personal penalty for sins. That's could not be more clear in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians uh, 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, we just see this over and over again that the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, is what we must believe in order to be saved. Uh, but over time, uh, as you know, God has revealed more and more of his uh, plan uh, for of the ages to mankind, you know, we have been responsible to believe more and more. So if you go back to Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteous. Uh, and so his faith is what saved him. What did he believe God for? Well, he believed that God was the only one who could provide redemption, that he was the one who would provide uh, a redeemer. Um, and, you know, uh, as God began to reveal more of his plan through the ages, then we became responsible to know and understand more. Um, so, you know, Abraham didn't believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again to pay his personal penalty for sins, because that hadn't happened yet and it hadn't been revealed yet. Um, you know, he he believed that God would provide a lamb for sure, but could could he name that lamb? Would he, did he know his name was Jesus? Did he know he would be crucified, for example? None of that had been unveiled yet through God's progressive 
uh, Revelation. So uh, I'm trying to find that quote because it, it's really uh, it's really uh, good. Uh, and when Ryrie talks about the the different basis uh, for uh, you know the gospel. Um, Anyway, I, I don't think I can put my hands on it quick enough to find it, but he, he basically reminds us that while the object of our faith ultimately is God in every age, the specific content changes as God reveals more information. And so that means, by the way, that uh, in after the rapture, in the tribulation period, uh, we're going to see a slightly different focus on the content of saving faith as well. And it, I believe it's going to have more of a messianic concept the way it did prior to the church age where you know to be saved you had in the in the time of Israel you had to understand that Jesus is the messiah i think that's going to happen again uh, in the millennium uh, eventually there will be unbelievers in the millennium those that are born from believers that enter the millennium in their physical bodies and they have children those children will be born dead in their trespasses and sins like all mankind romans 5:12 ephesians 2:1 and they'll need to be saved. Some of them will grow up and, and trust Christ. Some of them won't. But to be saved in the millennium, you won't so much be looking back at the cross, or from, say, Abraham's perspective, looking forward to God providing a Redeemer somehow. You'll look at Christ. You know, if you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever during the millennium, you know, you'll you'll it'll be different. You'll say, uh, hey, you know, did you know, did you know you're a sinner in need of a savior and that your sin consigns you to a literal place of torment called hell? But listen, you can be saved if you'll just put your trust in that guy sitting over there on the throne in Jerusalem who gave the state of the world address last January and you know on Fox News or whatever. You know, there, there's a person sitting on a throne that you have to trust in to be saved. So the object the the, the means of salvation in every age is faith, but the specific object changes. It doesn't change in the present age because the Bible has explicitly told us what it is in the church age, uh, and no one can be saved today apart from explicit knowledge that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again to pay their personal penalty for sins. Now, Simeon, that's from uh, that's from Luke uh, uh, 1, right? Let me look that up, where he's one, singing the song... Uh, at the birth announcement, see if we can find that. Am I in the right passage? He's waiting in the temple for them to bring him in on the eighth day. Okay, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, I mean, he's just talking about the, the Redeemer in the sense of uh, Christ. Yeah, Luke, it's Luke 2, not Luke 1. Yeah, you're right. It's the uh, on the eighth day. So he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's a very messianic term from the Old Testament. Peter uses it later in Acts chapter 3 um, that refers to the, the long-awaited one that would redeem uh, Israel. And remember, from a chronological standpoint, Christ came and he and John the Baptist both announced the kingdom is at hand. In other words, hypothetically, and we know this wasn't God's plan because you know he's made that clear that Israel would reject the Messiah, um, but hypothetically, had they embraced the Messiah and crowned him with a king's crown instead of thorns, then the kingdom would have started right then. Instead, there was a delay, and we're living in that delay right now. Jesus talked about that uh, 
uh, right at the end of his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 19, just as he's on the outskirts of Jerusalem, about ready to go in for that fateful you know, final week uh, uh, where he is uh, betrayed. Uh, and he said to the disciples, look, the king's going to go away for a while to receive the kingdom. Then he's going to come back after a while. And in the meantime, you need to be busy, you know, doing what I've told you to do. So uh, it turns out from a human perspective that there was this, this delay, which we're living in today. Um, but uh, Simeon was just looking at it in, from a, a very uh, messianic uh, perspective. And Job? was when he said my redeemer i know my redeemer lives and yeah. he'll stand on the earth so i think again it's he, just a it's the same thing that abraham it's this concept that only that he could not save himself there was nothing good within him as there's nothing good within any human being that can merit acceptance before a holy god we are utterly totally lost uh we cannot be good enough or become good enough or act righteous enough Remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew 5, 48, you have to be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. And so I think J Job was just acknowledging his own sinfulness and acknowledging that uh, God is the only one that can redeem him. Beyond that, it's we can't really say. It's one thing I really appreciate about your ministry is grace and the way you explain grace and getting the gospel wrong. Such a great book to have. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's it's our heartbeat for sure. Okay, Nancy has a question. Hi, I'm in the second row here. Okay. Um. So when Jesus died on the cross, the scripture tells us that he descended for or his spirit descended for three days and preached to um somebody. Who was that? So the text doesn't say that he descended for three days, uh, and I take a different view on those passages. So we're kind of conflating two passages here that people often associate together. The first is 1 Peter 3. Uh, let me bring that up. 1 Peter 3, 18, uh, where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So that's the key verse. That's all it says. It doesn't say exactly when, and it doesn't say for how long, and, and so forth. But it does describe who those spirits were when it says who, in the next verse, this is 1 Peter 3.20, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So uh, to me, that word spirit, and there are different views on this, so I'll be honest up front, um, uh, my view is probably the second most popular understanding of that passage, but I, I've studied it at length, and this is where I've landed, I'm pretty confident. Uh, the word spirit there. Uh, almost always refers to angelic beings. In fact, that Greek word only one other time, only one time in my view, uh, it, it refers to human beings, and that's in Hebrews 12, 23. So I believe this in the context, especially with the reference to Noah, it'd be interesting to see if Jeff Kinley addresses this passage in his book. Um, but uh, I believe that what it's saying is that Jesus went to the grave, to the prison, if you will, because he says they're in prison, 
and preached to those fallen angels who had left their proper domain. Jude chapter 6 describes that from the Genesis 6 angels I'm talking about. Uh, And he basically announced the final judgment and said, look, if you ever thought you were going to ever get out of this prison, Peter tells us that prison is called Tartarus, by the way. Uh, and the books of Enoch, which are not inspired, they're not part of the Bible, but they give a lot of historical relevant data. It talks about that uh, prison in Tartarus where these fallen angels have been confined all this time. So I think it's just a uh, an announcement of judgment that Jesus gave uh, to those spirits in particular. Now, the other passage that often people associate with this, which I don't think has anything to do with it, is Ephesians chapter 4. So let's... Uh, let me bring that up, Ephesians 4, 9, uh, where actually p- beginning in verse 8, uh, Paul quotes from uh, Psalm 68 when he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And by the way, the context of Ephesians 4 is all about spiritual gifts, so it has nothing to do with the, the context from First Peter that we just read. But it, then he gives kind of a parenthetical in verses 9 and 10, and he says, now this he ascended. What does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And again, that's all it says. And people have for years, I think due largely to the notes in the Schofield Bible, assumed that that was going to the grave. And therefore they said, oh, that's when he went and preached to the uh, people that Peter talks about. But as I said, I don't think Peter was talking about Peter uh, people there. I think he was talking about angelic spirits. That's the most normal way that that Greek word is used. Um, And so I think, you know, personally, that when he says he descended to the lower parts of the earth, he just meant uh, that, you know, he came came from heaven to earth, and then he went back to heaven. So I think it's a reference to the incarnation. Um, Again, there are a couple of other views. Some people say that, you know, he went, that the, the, the descended part there, when it says, now he ascended. What does it mean unless he first descended? Verse 9. Some people say that means he just went to the grave, that it's referring to his crucifixion and burial. And then, again, there's one other view that basically just says he went to the lower parts of the earth, meaning, you know, below the earth, and uh, between his death and resurrection, which is kind of the, based on your question, kind of the view that you were referring to, uh, and, you know, preached, somehow preached to, to believers that were somehow in this holding tank or, or something, and he set them free. I just don't see that. I think that stretches the context of both of those passages uh, pretty heavily. The first Peter passage, I think, is is quite clear because of the reference to the days of, of Noah, um, and, and also the fact that spirits always means, except for one possible exception, uh, angelic beings. Uh, so I think uh, it's just saying that he went and talked to those angels. That those angels, I mean, that was a pretty pivotal moment in God's plan of the ages. I mean, and fallen angels taking on human form, cohabiting with women who gave birth to a race of hybrids. And that was so devastating that God destroyed the earth at that time, except for Noah. And then it comes up twice in the New Testament, references to just what a horrible uh, you know, sin that was of these angels leaving their pop, you know, their domain. They're imprisoned forever. They'll never get out. You know, some demons are in prison temporarily in the abyss, the bottomless pit, uh, and those are going to be released at the midpoint of the tribulation to help in the final battle. 
But those fallen angels that uh, Peter's talking about, and by the way, another reason I hold that view is that it's the same author. Peter at First Peter three is talking about going to to preach, you know, this judgment to these fallen angels, and then in Second Peter he explicitly mentions those angels by, you know, without question, unambiguously. So uh, yeah, that's kind of how I would take that that passage. Okay, uh, Alyssa has a question. All right. So this morning I was reading my Bible and I was in Corinthians, First Corinthians 11. And this is where Paul is talking about um, covering the head in worship. So it's First uh, Corinthians 11 and the specific verse would be 10. So it says, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. So I was just kind of curious what exactly that means when they talk about the angels in that verse. Yeah, so I'm not exactly sure without reviewing the reference to angels there, uh, other than, you know, uh, for when I've taught this before, you know, I've mentioned that obviously mankind is God's highest pinnacle of creation. We are representing God's glory to all the created realm, including the angelic realm, and God's divine design in terms of authority in the home as well as in the church is for male leadership. Um, and so I think, you know, he, he's saying here that the, 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 the women ought to understand uh, and respect the, div the divine order of authority. And, and again, you know, we believe that uh, biblically men and women are completely equal. In fact, mankind was completely in, you know, incomplete until after Eve was created. God's plan all along was to create them male and female, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So I always point out that uh, the the female is the highest pinnacle, the crown jewel of mankind. Uh, God looked at everything he created day after day and said, it is good, it is good, it is good. Then he looked at Adam and said, it is not good that man should be alone. But in the Hebrew, the phrase, it is not good, just jumps off the page. So lest men somehow, you know, uh, have this misogynistic attitude and think that men are in charge and, you know, rule rule it over everyone, that they need to remember that we were completely not good until Eve was created. And then God said, now it's very good. And so, uh, so with that caveat, I would say what he's saying here, though, is the divine design about authority. Now, I thought your question was going to be about head coverings. Um, my view on that, which is pretty pretty much the consistent dispensational view, is just that the principle here in this epistle is about the establishment of authority and, and proper chain of command, so to speak. Uh, the head covering was a cultural thing in that day, um, not something that was intended to be timeless uh, to this day. So I don't think it's necessary for women to wear head coverings in church today, although a lot of people do. You know, the Brethren Movement does. I respect that. I, you know, if that's what the Lord's put on your heart, you should do it. But I think that's stretching the context of the passage. Thank you. Uh, another thing in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, 13 to 16. So how can unbelieving husbands be sanctified by their wives? And how can they save each other, specifically in verse 16? Um, and how can this work? And what does that mean? Yeah, so uh, sanctified in Scripture in the New Testament, the Greek word just means set apart, and so the context has to determine meaning, uh, as with all words, frankly. So theologically, sanctification can mean in some context 
The same thing as justification. We are positionally set apart in Christ the moment we place our faith in Christ. Uh, sometimes it can mean uh, progressively that as we grow in Christ and walk in the Spirit, we are being gradually conforming to the image of Christ and being set apart in uh, in holiness. Uh, but sometimes it just means set apart in a in a in a unique way somehow. And I think that's the context here in First Corinthians seven that if you've got a, a situation where you're unequally yoked. Uh, the believer uh, should not use that as an excuse to leave the marriage and get divorced because God might be setting apart the unbeliever in a unique way through your testimony and through your influence and through your witness. So it's very possible that they might come to be saved. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 16, which you mentioned, is that ultimately, you know, God may use a believing spouse to lead an unbelieving spouse to Christ. Okay. So not actually save them, but lead them to a self-saving salvation. Correct. Yeah. Because obviously, you know, uh, scripture is quite clear that, that the only means of salvation is personal faith. Uh, I can't save you. You can't save me. Save, remember, just means deliver. And, uh, you know, you, you might deliver them into the arms of Christ when they trust in him is the idea there. Sounds good. Renee has a question. I have a question about nine marks. Um, what is the nine marks view on preaching regarding the end times and world events? Well, you, you, you if you tell me, we'll both know, you know, uh, they, uh, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Mark Dever. I quote him uh, critically in my Getting the Gospel Wrong book. He, of course, is a Calvinist, so their view of the gospel is different from what I understand it to be. Um, but, uh, you know, if you go to their website, they don't really have any statement about eschatology. I'm sure he has a view. I mean, he's a theologian. He's a biblicist. He, he studies the Word, so I'm sure if you could ask him personally— he would give you his view. My guess is it's going to be more amillennial or at best historic premill. Most Calvinists are amillennial, um, but I really don't know. And I, I that's not their passion. They're so focused on building the church today uh, that they really don't think about uh, end time. So I, I really couldn't tell you. Uh, so thinking about Matthew 24, 31, for an example, who are the elect? And then give us your short version on the five-point Calvinism and Lord courtship salvation. So what are you trying to say now? What are you trying to say? I'm long-winded? Um, no, I, uh, so yeah, the elect, that's an easy one. That's Israel in the context. Uh, the Olivet Discourse is all about Israel. Uh, it's focusing on uh, the nation of Israel prior to the return of Christ. Jesus in chapter 23 had just uh, rejected Israel and told the leaders in Israel that they will not see him again until the nation cries out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, and then the disciples wanted to know, well, what will be the specific signs that we can look for uh, prior to your return? And then he lays out very systematically um, this uh you know, uh, all of these signs that correspond perfectly to the tribulation period in Revelation 6 to 18. So the elect there is God's chosen nation. Elect just means chosen. And so in the Old Testament, again and again, the nation of Israel is, is referred to as God's chosen people. Uh, in fact, one of the best uh, Jewish ministries today that I know of, there are several, uh, 
But one of them that I've worked with before is Chosen People Ministries. And so that's where they get that concept from. Uh, so elect, like all words, has to be understood in its context. In that context, it's talking about national election, the same thing it is in Romans 9, by the way. Romans 9 is not about individual election. It's about national election of Israel. Uh, as far as five-point Calvinism, I'm a zero-point Calvinist, the way they define it. Uh, I would encourage you to check out my What is Calvinism and Is It Biblical? Uh a viewpoint, but um, five points of Calvinism come from the Synod of Dort and those five uh, key uh, principles that they hold to, often uh, referred to by the acronym TULIP, uh, T-U-L-I-P, so quickly. TULIP, they believe in what they call total depravity, but what they really mean is total inability. You couldn't believe the gospel if you wanted to. God has to force you to believe it. Total inability. So I reject that unconditional election. They believe that your election unto eternal life has no conditions attached. I disagree. I think there's one condition, which the Bible repeatedly mentions 160 plus times in the New Testament alone, and that is faith. You have to believe the gospel to be saved, period. That's a condition. It's not a work. It's not something you have to pay for or earn or do. It's the receiving of a gift. Uh, but all gifts, by definition, must be received. If you don't receive the gift, it doesn't belong to you. Uh, so I can give you a gift all day long, and if you don't take it, uh, you're, you're, you don't have it. So you have to receive the gift, and scripturally, the way you receive the gift of eternal life is by faith. So there is that one condition. The L stands for limited atonement. They believe that uh, you know Christ died only for the sins of the elect, uh, that is patently and provably false. First uh, John two two sort of settles the issue for me, where the Bible says Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Uh, period. Uh, so we believe Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Uh, period. All everyone their debt has been paid. All they have to do is receive it. But if they don't cash the check, then they're no better off. You know. Again. Uh, you know that the the atonement of Christ uh, was sufficient for all, but efficient only for the those who trust in Christ. And so um, he died for the sins of the whole world. The U is, um, I mean, I'm sorry, T U L. I can't spell I. Irresistible grace. Again, they believe that you cannot reject the gospel if you're one of the elect. Um, in fact, faith they believe is not your voluntary response to the gospel, they believe it's an involuntary result of your salvation. So you get saved first, and then you believe the gospel, and God does that. You don't have anything to say about it. So we believe the opposite. We believe faith is the instrumental cause of eternal life. You have to believe, then you're saved. They believe you're regenerated, and then you believe. Uh, so uh, I resist. I reject irresistible grace. And then the P stands for perseverance of the saints, which because they believe that God does it all, uh, you know, you can't believe the gospel, so God believes it for you. Uh, you, you, you know, Christ only died for you. Uh, you can't reject it. You, you're forced to believe it. Therefore, you will persevere in good works until the end of your life. And if you depart from the faith at any point, uh, then you, it proves that you weren't saved and you're going to hell. We uh, passionately reject that. And the Bible gives us several examples of people that did not end their life well, but they're in heaven today. Um, Saul, uh, John the Baptist, 
persevering until the end of your life is not a condition for getting into heaven. If it were, you'd never know whether you're saved till you, after you die, you know, um, you, you know, you just, you just, you just have to kind of wait and, and see what happens at the end. Now, you know, it's kind of like the Calvinist that falls down the stairs. What does he say? Well, glad that's over. I mean, that, that's all he can say, right? So, uh, you know, we reject perseverance of the saints. We believe that God's divine design is for every believer to persevere and to, to live out their faith and to walk with Christ and to abide in Christ. But thankfully, our eternal destiny is not contingent upon our ability to live for Christ and thereby allegedly prove that we're saved. Our eternal destiny is contingent upon only the promise of Christ, who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. How was that Lord short? Himself? Was that yeah, short? that was good. No? Okay. <laughs> uh, Lordship salvation. So that's just another name for Calvinism, basically. Uh, it was popularized by MacArthur back in the late 80s with his book, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus. But it's the view that, uh, see, what Calvinists believe is that in addition to what I just described with that, their five points, they believe that actually what you have to do to get saved is more than just believe. They they redefine faith to mean all of this. And I and I show this in the book Getting the Gospel Wrong. I quote them in their in their own words, and I do the same thing in the video series, the five-part video series. But to, this is what this is how they define faith. For them, Faith means a pledge of allegiance, a promise to forsake sin, a full commitment, a full surrender, a making Jesus Lord, a putting him on the throne of your life. All of those things are wrapped up into the simple word faith. We reject that. The word faith simply means confidence or assurance. All of those other things are matters of discipleship or uh, sanctification, like we talked about a moment ago. So every Christian certainly should make him Lord of their life. They ought to you know, surrender to him every day. They ought to follow him and so forth and so on. But that's not how you get saved. They, the Calvinists make salvation out to be this bilateral contract where you, know, you promise to make him Lord and follow and obey him. And if you do, then he'll give you eternal life. We say, nope, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Jesus paid it all. I'm, it's a matter of who are you trusting in? If your trust is in Jesus Christ, the one who took your penalty on the cross and died in your place, then you're saved. All of those other things uh, should follow naturally, but they're not guaranteed because we still have that fleshly nature. And if we cater to the fleshly nature, we certainly can look like an unbeliever. Yeah, that's right. How about the uh, difference between reform theology, theology and dispensationalism? So, uh, that's a great question. If I put up a chart and share my screen, will you guys be able to see it? Is your screen large enough there? Right. Maybe. Well, yeah. Okay. Let yeah, me. Yeah, I think it... Okay. Perfect. Let me let me put this up because this is going to help uh, uh, in understanding uh, these two things. So let's go here. And I'll go back here and see if I can share my screen. Yeah, this will work. Okay, are you able to see that okay? Yeah. Wow, yeah. That's wonderful. Okay. <laughs> so um, 
Calvinism or Reformed theology, that's just another way of, of saying Calvinism, relates specifically to salvation, the doctrine of salvation. Um, the, the real contrast is not between dispensationalism and Reformed theology. It's between dispensationalism and covenant theology. But as you can see, the fifth item there on my chart is salvation. So the big difference between these two theological understandings relates to, let's see if I can get this to advance. Uh, so are those coming in on the screen when you see it, when I click them? Yeah. Okay, perfect. So dispensationalism holds to a literal grammatical historical understanding of Scripture. That is, we believe the Bible is to be understood the way words are naturally normally used in, in, the, in the setting of their day. Uh, they're not some mystical meaning, not some code meaning. You're not supposed to look between the lines on the page and divine some goosebump meaning. It's what does the word mean? You know, language has meaning in its literal setting, in its historical setting, and, and it, it takes into account grammar, subjects, nouns, verbs, that kind of thing. Thing. Covenant theology tends to allegorize Scripture. Now, uh, as this chart shows, uh, what's funny or what's strange is that dispensationalists try to practice a consistent literal interpretation. Covenant is literal on the historic portions of Scripture, but they are allegorical when it comes to prophecy. And it's, it's really strange and inconsistent. So what I mean by that is they look at passages like, say, Isaiah 7, 14, and they admit, yes, Jesus was literally born of a virgin, or Micah 5, 2, Jesus was literally born in Bethlehem, because those are historical events that have happened. But some, for some reason, when they look at the Old Testament prophecies related to Christ's second coming, suddenly they start allegorizing it and making it out to be one big metaphor. So, for example, uh, Ezekiel 40 to 48, the, the temple, all, that's one giant metaphor. None of those details are literal. Um, the return of Christ is not literal. The rebuilt temple is not literal. The throne is not literal. The boundaries of the kingdom described in uh, Genesis 15 are not literal. So, so back to this chart. So that's one of the big differences is that dispensationalists strive to be consistently literal in our interpretation. And then as it relates to uh, the church uh, and Israel, we see, because of our literal hermeneutic, we believe that the church and Israel are two different programs, uh, and, and and they will remain so all the way through eternity. The church is the bride of Christ. Israel is God's chosen nation. We will all be in the kingdom together someday, but we have different roles to play. Uh, as far as the purpose of God in human history, we believe ultimately it's to bring God glory. Covenant theology focuses on redeeming mankind. That's Everything's about what they call the scarlet thread of redemption. And while it is certainly true that God's plan involves redeeming mankind, he's, his ultimate plan is to bring himself glory. Uh, in terms of the end times or eschatology, we believe, therefore, in a literal earthly kingdom, just the way the Bible describes it. They don't have a literal earthly kingdom. And then here's the one that really you asked about, and that is Calvin or Reformed theology versus dispensationalism. There are some exceptions, but in general, dispensationalists are going to be free grace, meaning the, the view of salvation that I just articulated a moment ago, that salvation is simply by grace through faith. You can't earn it. It's totally free, absolutely free. The Bible says, whosoever will, let him come drink freely of the water of life, Revelation 22. Um, 
Romans 3.24, we are justified freely by His grace. Uh, they believe uh, in more of a Calvinistic view uh, or a Reformed theology view or Lordship salvation view of, uh, of salvation. Now, there are exceptions, like John MacArthur, for example, uh, considers himself dispensational in the first four categories, but not the fifth. So he calls himself, this is his label for himself, a leaky dispensationalist, meaning he, he acknowledges that his dispensational paradigm uh, is not consistent you know, with the view of salvation that most dispensationalists hold. So, so there are exceptions. This, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but it's rare. Chances are, if someone is a, a Calvinist, uh, they're going to hold to, you know, a millennial view and those kinds of things. So does that help? It does. Very good. Yeah, wow. Thank you. That was great. Um, Jody has a question next. Okay. So uh, what would you say to people who are saying nowadays, we are building the kingdom now? Is this a statement um, that is relevant to one's view on premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism? Yeah, so the Kingdom Now movement is largely a sort of a recasting and a you know a refinement of post-millennialism. So after the Reformation, back you know say early eight, I mean late eighteenth, early nineteenth centuries, you started to have three sort of views of of the end times emerge, and and these are somewhat representative throughout. History, of course, the premillennial view is representative in every century for the last two thousand years, and I have studied that in my PhD program. And my colleague and friend, Dr. Tommy Ice, that I uh, work with a lot, and he wrote a chapter in my book, "Freely by His Grace." He's done this, the most yeoman's work on this, uh, publishing uh, incontrovertible evidence in his journal articles that uh, premillennialism is represented throughout, you know, church history, as is the rapture and a twofold return of Christ, but. The three views that really emerged once people could start reading the Bible for themselves again without being burned at the stake like they would by the Catholic Church for, what, 1,500 years in the Middle Ages, when they started reading it for themselves, they started uh, sort of coming into one of three camps. The the premillennial view, which, as I said, was attested throughout church history. The amillennial view, which was the predominant view throughout church history. I mean, remember, the remnant is really the way God works. And so because of Roman Catholicism's influence, most people thought— they were living in the kingdom. There's not going to be a literal return of Christ to establish a literal earthly kingdom from a literal temple and a literal throne. The, the Pope was the king, they thought. But the third view was the post-millennial view, uh, which is that the, the world's going to get better and better and better, and when we finally get it cleaned up enough, Christ will say, okay, I'm ready to come back, and he comes back post-millennial. Or if you if you were to go back in time from the from the moment Christ returns to the earth a thousand years, that's the millennium. So he doesn't come to inaugurate the millennial kingdom. He comes to climax the millennial kingdom. That's that's post-millennialism. Well, that view largely began to die out after World War I, when it was pretty clear the world's not getting better and better. Uh, and so turn of the 20th century, you started to see that view kind of fade away. But it has gained resurgence 
in the last few decades uh, with the help of men like uh, the late Pat Robertson uh, and other uh, reconstructionists, they call them, uh, or uh, theonomic ethics is another term for that viewpoint that basically teaches if you can just impose the biblical law on the world and elect enough Christians into office and and put Christians in charge of everything so that we can mandate morality uh, in our different nations. And if we can do that enough, then then we'll, the world will get better and we're going to see this great revival that will climax in the return of Christ. Well, obviously you, you uh, ladies have been studying the Bible long enough to know that's completely inconsistent with the biblical picture, which is that things are getting worse and worse. Second Timothy 3.13 says, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, uh, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, and it's going to get so bad that ultimately God's going to bring judgment, uh, just as he did in the days of Noah, uh, through the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments after the rapture, which is the outpouring of God's wrath, the prophetic wrath of God, uh, Revelation 6, the wrath is coming upon the earth after the rapture. And uh, so the post-millennial view, or what's now called Reconstructionism, is simply not consistent with Scripture. And so kingdom now, we would reject. Um, I mean, we're not ushering in the kingdom now. Only Christ can do that. Right. Yeah. So I got one more. So the, the pre-millennials, is that from like Antioch? And then the amillennials, is that from Alexandria? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, the, all of higher criticism loves to go back to uh, Alexandria. Um, but uh, so from a historical sort of lineage, if you want to look at it that way, but uh, it's easier to think of it in terms of, of, of what does the Bible say? I don't want to sound trite, but, you know, the Bible clearly teaches a two-phased return of Christ once in the air for the church, his bride. And then uh, after that, seven years or more later, all the way to the earth, the church coming with him to inaugurate the kingdom on earth, just as he promised he, he would. Thank you. Hey, um, what Bible translation do you recommend? Uh, what study Bible, study Bible? And then what would be your view of the NIV? So I definitely am a New King James advocate. Uh, I I believe that um, you know it's it's you know the most consistent in its translation technique. Uh, King James is fine too in terms of its translation technique. It's just that some of the words are archaic, and by nature, language changes over time, and words change their meaning over time, and so you need. When you're doing a translation, you want to translate it with the words that mean something in their time, right? And so uh, the New King James is my preference. Um, uh, without getting too far down into the weeds, uh, you know, there's uh, all kinds of uh, manuscript evidence that we have of the New Testament, over 6,000 manuscripts or manuscript fragments that date all the way back, some of them, a handful of them to the, you know, second and third centuries. We don't have the original manuscripts, you know, encased in a, a glass box somewhere signed by Paul or, you know, Matthew or, you know, whoever. Um, those over time, those original manuscripts disintegrated and so forth. But the doctrine of preservation teaches that the content of God's Word preserve, is preserved. 
Uh, you know, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. So somewhere within those 6,000 manuscript fragments, we have the original wording of exactly what uh, the Spirit of God led the writers of Scripture to say. And so most modern English translations uh, translate from what's called the critical text viewpoint, and that is that, uh, you know, they take uh, whatever manuscript evidence we have the most of, they assume, I'm sorry, whatever we have manuscript evidence that's the oldest, they assume that's the original. So if you have, say, 10 fragments of one verse, nine of them are identical, but one of them is slightly different, maybe it leaves out a word or something like that, um, then they, if that one manuscript is older, they're going to say, well, that's the original. Uh the New King James is based on what's called the majority text approach, which is God most likely preserved his writings in the majority of, of what's called extant or uh, the manuscripts that we have in our possession. Um, and so in that scenario, they would go with the reading of the nine. Now, all of the manuscripts agree 98.5% of the time, and the disagreements uh, where there's textual variance uh, and what we're talking about here is scribes that hand copied these manuscripts over the centuries. You know, sometimes they made a typo. I mean, that's just, you know, the original documents are inspired and infallible, but mankind isn't. And so just as, as if I were to misquote a scripture, which I often do, it gets jumbled in my head. It doesn't impugn the authority and infallibility of God's word. Same thing is true of the scribes who might have made a typo, what we would call a typo. So we're not talking about any major differences here, but there are some. And so most modern English translations uh, translate from the, the critical text viewpoint. The New King James uh, translates from the majority text viewpoint. That's my uh, perspective. Uh, as far as what study Bible, I would highly recommend what is now called the NKJV study Bible. It used to be called the Nelson study Bible. I knew and was good friends with the general editor who's with the Lord now, Earl Rodmacher. He wrote the foreword to my first book years ago. Uh, and most of the contributors in the Old and New Testament study notes are men that I either sat under at Dallas Seminary or have worked with or know. Uh, very consistent premillennial dispensational study Bible called the NKJV Study Bible. And it's just an excellent, the way it's laid out, the charts, the graphs, the notes, the, the introductory comments to each book are just excellent. Uh, as far as uh, the nearly inspired version, or the NIV, as some people call it, um, I would uh, I, I think all English translations have their strengths and limitations because the Bible simply wasn't written in English, right? The Bible was written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic over a period of fifteen hundred years. Um, so, uh, what my my concern about the NIV as a primary study Bible, using it to do your main study of God's Word. Is that it's paraphrastic. It's it's um, it's translating the ideas and the thoughts of Scripture rather than the words word for word. Um, so uh, yeah, I think you know when you're studying the Bible, you want a consistent translation that's going to try its best to to be translating word for word. Now you can't do that perfectly in any English translation because some words just don't translate. Um, but the NIV is highly paraphrastic. And so it, it, you know, I, I don't mind occasionally quoting from it if the paraphrase that they give happens to really capture what I believe is the original meaning of the text. Uh, but I, I, I cer certainly wouldn't recommend uh, teaching from it or studying from it uh, as your primary source. All right. 
Um, I see that you have a study on hermeneutics on your website, uh, one that one can enroll in. Is there anything a little lower key or, uh, you know, something on that line that you would recommend if we were to do another study as our women's group uh, in hermeneutics? Yeah. So the uh, Bible study methods course that we offer is, as you said, it's it's you know it's self guided. You do it at your own pace and so forth. Uh, but it's you know it's a fifteen week course with uh, like what I would teach at a Bible college, and it's you know it's got a lot of reading and some textbooks and some study questions. And but you do it all on your own, and I'm available you know to help if you want. But for a, a group study, I highly recommend Howard Hendricks' book, Living by the Book. Uh, it's a uh, very readable. It's got study questions at the end of each, uh, or discussion questions at the end of each chapter. I think it even has a workbook that you can get, a corresponding workbook to work through. So that's, uh, you know, that's one of the best ones out there, I think, for a consistent, you know, Bible study method. Okay, good, good. Anyone else have anything on theology? No? Okay, well, moving on. End times. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of it. So, yeah. yeah, it is at the end, yes. Will everyone hear the trumpet and the shout of the archangel at the rapture or only believers? Don Perkins believes that though we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, the actual ascension into heaven at the rapture will be slower and observed by unbelievers as it was with the ascension of Jesus and the two witnesses. Do you agree on that? Um, I love Don Perkins. He's just such a, a great guy. I've I've had the chance to to speak at conferences where we were both speakers many times. Um, so just on the strength of him being such a great guy, I I tend to say, yeah, I agree with him. Um, but uh, but what I would say is, first of all, I do think the trumpet will be heard everywhere. I think it's a supernatural announcement that everyone will hear. As far as the speed with which we are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. I think that's speculative. Uh, he might be right uh, that it's slow, um, but you know, similarity does not mean correlation. And while it's true that in Acts chapter one, uh, you know, the disciples saw the Lord descending up into the clouds, that's a totally different uh, scenario, a different context. Obviously, he's not a church age believer that was redeemed by faith. He's the God in the flesh. So I don't know that I would tie those two verses together. Could it be true that the rapture, uh, in addition to the trumpet being heard everywhere, everyone will see us rising up? Very possible. I, I think that's possible, but I just, I can't really, you know, say definitively the speed with which we would be caught up. Um, on that same thought, when the graves are going to be opened, do you think that they're literally going to be dirt piles all over the place and uh, coffins are opened? Or or is it just going to be a travel through all of that into the air? Well, so graves are by nature materialistic. They're made up of atoms and so forth. Um the vast majority of believers who've died over the last 2,000 years and were put in a grave, because remember, many weren't. I mean, some were burned up, some were lost at sea, any number of ways that the physical body meets its demise. Um, but just thinking of believers whose bodies were put in the grave, the vast majority of those bodies have disintegrated into nothing. 
dirt, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? Um, so there would be no need for those graves to physically move the earth and open the casket and those kinds of things. Uh, uh, and back in the day, and, you know, going back 2000 years, they didn't necessarily even use caskets, you know, and they just buried the bodies like on the battlefield and places like that. So, um, you know, I found it interesting in the Left Behind movie, the latest one, uh, you know, that's the way they depicted it. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, you've got the 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 dead in Christ will rise first, meaning their physical bodies, wherever they are, and whatever state they're in, if again, if they were lost at sea, their atoms never cease to exist. There's always some, you know, microscopic component of that materialistic part of the body. It will be reconstituted and and put on a glorified state that is then reunited with the soul of the believer. Because remember, Paul said to be absent from the body, the physical body, is to be present with the Lord. So no such thing as soul sleep. Every believer who dies transfers uh, immediately to be in the presence of the Lord, never loses consciousness. It's just, you know, death for the believer is the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. Um but their physical body has to be glorified in order to enter the kingdom. Remember, Paul said, "Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom." Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that we can say with certainty what graveyards are going to look like after the rapture. Um, I suppose if you've got someone that was recently passed away and their body is still in physical form, maybe. But the big the big thing that we know from Scripture is that this mortal must put on immortality, this corruption must put on this corruptible must put on incorruption. All right. Um, so when Jesus refers to the days of the Great Tribulation as being shortened from Matthew 24, 21, and 22, is he actually saying that they will be shorter than the three and a half years we're expecting? Or is he saying that the three and a half years actually are the shortened time. And could that be shortened because of the um, uh, sixth seal in Revelation 6, 12 to 17? Yeah, no. So shortened is not the best translation. It's the word echolobothesin, or uh, echo, that's the uh, parsed form, uh, echolo. I can't, I can't remember the, the dictionary form of the word, but Anyway, it's the only time, it, it's not the only time it's used. It means cut off. Actually, I think it is the only time it's used in the Greek New Testament, but it just means cut off or terminated. And so what he's saying there is that if this tribulation didn't end when it's scheduled to end, if it went on much longer, everyone would die. So he's not talking about shortening the seven years to a, to a shorter period of time. He's talking about, and nor is he talking, some people take that to mean that the physical days would be shorter. I don't think that's the case at all. He's just saying that, uh, you know, if God did not terminate this seven-year tribulation time, if it kept on going, everyone would die. That's what he's saying. Okay. All right. Okay. During the millennium, will we be living in the New Jerusalem or over the whole earth? Will you be ruling and reigning in the tall pines of Colorado? And will <laughs> we be ruling and reigning in the north? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I, uh, you know, I, was, I don't know where I'm going to be ruling, if anywhere. I just, I just hope to hear well done, good and faithful servant, uh, like we all should hope for if we're faithful. Um, 
but no, the uh, the believers will have the freedom to go, come and go anywhere in the kingdom. So uh, as far as where our homes will be, um, I, I don't know if I can tell you. We know Christ has prepared for us a place, um, but the Bible doesn't get down to that level of detail. Now, traditionally, dispensationalists have tried to associate the New Jerusalem uh, with Israel and the the new earth with the, the church and so forth. Uh, I'm not sure we can really say that from the biblical text. That's more of a speculation. Um, but I've always believed and taught that we will be able to come and go, you know, from heaven to earth. Uh, and ultimately when the new heavens, and the new earth are in place, we'll be able to go, you know, from the new Jerusalem to the new earth. Now I do believe, uh, and I talk about this in my book, what lies ahead, that the new Jerusalem is not in place until the millennium, uh, it's it's uh, it's not. I'm I'm sorry. Is is not in place until the eternal state after the millennium. It's not like there's a two new Jerusalems, one during the millennium and one later. The the text in Revelation makes it associates the new Jerusalem with the new heavens and the new earth. So, I think the Jerusalem that we see during the millennial phase of the kingdom prior to the eternal state is. Although it's bigger, Ezekiel describes it as bigger. Uh, there are geographic changes that Isaiah talks about. The Temple Mount's going to be bigger. Obviously, the Temple's much bigger. I think it's still in the same geographic location it was now. Then when the earth is destroyed at the end of the millennium and recreated in sinless perfection, then that's when the new Jerusalem comes into place. Yeah, that helps. So, so on that same thought, then, so the new Jerusalem is going to be up just a bit above the new earth or where are we at? No, it's beyond the earth. It's a city on the earth. It's the city of God, the holy city, and it'll be uh, on the new earth, but it'll be unmarred by sin. And it'll be, you know, uh, you know, a glory like no other. Uh, but no, it's not, it's not a satellite city. Again, some old school dispensationists used to teach that because they thought that the New Jerusalem was in place during the millennium, and then after the the Earth is destroyed, you know, it hovers above the Earth, and then the Earth's destroyed, and then it comes back down and rests on the New Earth. But I don't, uh, I don't see that at all. I think it's it doesn't even come into existence until the New Heavens and the New Earth. In the millennium, it's the same Jerusalem. It's just you know, got the King of Kings and Lord of Lords ruling in it, and the temple is more magnificent than it ever has been, way better than Solomon's, certainly better than Herod's or the Antichrist's, uh, but it's nothing compared to the New Jerusalem. And by the way, in the New Jerusalem, there is no temple, because the Revelation tells us the Godhead is the temple, right? So the new heavens and the new earth are completely different. There's no night, there's no darkness, there's no uh, uh, rivers, and things like that. Do you think there's going to be a portion of the earth that'll be um, maybe where the United States was, or is it all just going to be in the in that continent where Israel is at? I haven't really thought about it. Uh, it would be, you know, it would be speculative, but, you know, I think it's the Bible comes full circle back to a pre-fall Edenic state. So whatever it looked like prior to the fall is what it's going to look like then. So that means probably no, you know, Pangea, which I think happened because of the flood. So I think we'll have just one landmass, but that's just speculative. I could be wrong. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. 
Um, we have a question from Alyssa on the Nephilim. Oh, yeah. So this goes to Genesis 6, uh, 4. Um, so my question is, you know, the Nephilim or I guess the fallen angels at that time came to earth and had um, babies with the women. Um, so they're half fallen angel, half human. So did those, I guess, those children of those women and fallen angels, did they have souls? And my second part of the question is, do you think that there still could be fallen angels today that could be still doing that type of a thing? So great question. And I, I've talked a lot about this. I had Mondo Gonzalez on uh, a few weeks ago, and he and I have talked about it. Andy Woods and I have talked about it. Um, uh, my view is, so first of all, let's identify the principal things involved. You've got fallen angels. You've got which are called the sons of God in Genesis 6, 4, and sons of God always refers to angels. Uh, then you've got uh, the daughters of men, which are the human women, and they cohabit. And the result is a race of hybrids called the Nephilim. The word Nephilim is plural. Uh, anytime you add im in Hebrew, it's, it means plural. So, you know, seraphim, cherubim, nephilim, rephaim, those kind of things. Um, the word nephilim is only used twice in the new in the in the old testament, but the nephilim are the offspring of this unholy union between the fallen angels and the daughters of men. And again, as we talked about earlier, the New Testament corroborates that and, and refers back to it and so forth and so on. These these angels left their proper domain. Um Genesis 6:4 tells us that those nephilim that are the product of that union were on the earth both before and after the flood uh now that's hard for some people to accept and um you know uh, i i just take the bible at its face value meaning there i don't try to you know don't try to figure it out um my best guess is um so there are two views for those who believe that that's what genesis 6 4 means that the nephilim were present after the flood uh which I think is the right view. There are two views as to how that happened. My view, uh, although I'm open to both views, like they don't—they're not mutually exclusive. They could both be true. Uh, but my view has always been that because they were hybrid nature in, in nature, and by the way, they do not have a soul. So let me cut right to the chase on that. Absolutely, they're not human. They're not redeemable. They're just like angels in that sense. There's not—you can't be partially human. You're either human or you're not. Right? Um, you know, it's—it's it's kind of like the girl that told her. Uh, dad, she was pregnant. He, and, and he said, you're pregnant. She said, yeah, but just a little, you know, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. You can't be a little bit human or or, or not. You're either human or you're not. So uh, the hybrids do not have souls. They're not redeemable. They're not human. So uh, I believe because they were hybrids that they were able to shape shift back into the spirit form, hover above the floodwaters. And when the floodwaters receded, they they could, if they wanted, come back to the earth and come and go. And that's what hybrids do. So in the same way that uh, demonic spirits and evil spirits and fallen angels and things can manifest as human beings, so these hybrids can too. Now, they're in a unique class, uh, and you know we don't need to get into all of the teaching on the Nephilim. I've talked about it at length in, in other places, but um, that's one way that they could have been present after the flood. The other way is uh, that, let's say, those Nephilim perished in the flood. Um, 
then the fallen angels that committed that sin, they were cast into Tartarus, Peter tells us, so they're not in commission anymore. But perhaps other fallen angels repeated the same sin. And, uh, you know, Mondo and others believe that. I think it's very possible. I think that we're seeing these intrusions today. Uh, I, I think, like I said, my view is both could be true. Um, you know, the whole alien abduction concept, I think that has a lot of correspondence to this notion of fallen angels coming to earth and uh, targeting uh, women. Um, so either way, there seems to be no question that there are Nephilim on the earth uh, today, and that number seems to be increasing. From our perspective, you don't necessarily know if you're dealing with a full-blown fallen angel or some kind of a hybrid fallen angel. It's, they're all part of Satan's team, the, the, the spiritual realm. Remember, as I said at the very first question, the, the conspiracy is between, it involves Satan, evil spirits, and human beings. The evil spirit component could be fallen angels, uh, which some people think is just a synonym for demons. It could be Nephilim. Uh, demons could be the disembodied spirits of Nephilim, because they don't even show up until the New Testament. Um, you, you just don't know, but he has at his disposal all of these angelic or uh, celestial, Brad Maston calls them celestial beings that are evil in nature uh, at his disposal. So did I answer everything about the Nephilim that you asked? Yes, thank you. Thanks, Jana. Okay, um, Dr. David Reagan has a theory where he correlates that 6,000 years of human history so far to six days of creation, and then the seventh day of rest with the millennial period. Would you agree with that, or do, does that mean we're close to the rapture? Well, we're definitely close to the rapture, in my view, but not for that reason. Uh, I think there are plenty of other biblical uh, signs of the times that uh, show that. Uh, tomorrow night at Prophecy Night, I'm going to be giving—well, I won't get to all of them, but I'm going to start uh, talking about at least seven so far geopolitical signs that indicate we're getting ready for the you know the tribulation which means the rapture must be closer i love dave reagan um i'm very familiar with that view i did a podcast on it a few months ago with uh, a guest uh bill perkins who holds that view um i i, I find it very intriguing that for a lot of reasons you know the set the number seven is perfection seven thousand years um for those who may not know the view basically it's the view that God's plan of human history is 7,000 years, and that the millennium is the final thousand years of that before the new heavens and the new earth. That means that all of human history is only 6,000 years. And, you know, if you follow the traditional dating uh, system that uh, Harold Honer and others have articulated through their extensive study of this, uh, it goes back to Usher was the one who first kind of articulated it, that, that creation began 4004 BC, the way we would call it today by today's reckoning of time. And uh, so then the church age is roughly going to be 2000 years. Well, if Christ uh, res resurrected in 33 AD and the church was founded 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, then that means that roughly the year 2033 would be the end of the church age, um, depending on whether you put the tribulation you know, as a gap between them or part of it. Either way, we're getting closer to uh, the, the potential for uh, the rapture. The reason that I sometimes disagree with people who hold that view isn't so much the concept. I think the concept is very intriguing and may very well be true, but a lot of people point to certain passages of Scripture 
that they allegorize in the Old Testament, where they try to make day mean a thousand years. And I just, I don't see the exegetical proof for it. To me, it's more of a theological inference that, yeah, we could be looking at a 7,000-year time period. I'm not I'm not opposed to that. I think it could very well be true. I just can't point to chapter and verse and say, this is why we know that it's only going to be 6,000 years. I have a question that is uh, different than this. I'm just wondering, um, our loved ones, do you think that they can see us from heaven? And number two, um, do you think that, what are they doing up there? Besides running around and trying to find people to talk to from the Old Testament. and <laughs> um, Yeah, I have a, a video I, that I called A Glimpse of Heaven that we uh, sell at our, on our streaming content. Um, and I, I kind of describe what I think life's going to be like in heaven based on Scripture. Um, first of all, your first question uh biblical anthropology teaches us that the limitations of humanity don't change when we leave earth and go to heaven in other words just because we go to heaven doesn't mean suddenly we we have omniscience and omnipresence or or you know uh bionic eyes or you know those kinds of things we're still human beings uh, we don't have the same fleshly body but we're still human beings and that is a class or category of creation so I don't think as a rule or routinely that automatically the minute we go to heaven, suddenly we have this, you know, incredible omniscience and we can see everything at once like God can. That said, I do believe it's certainly possible that God could, you know, call us into his office and say, you know, let's say I was in heaven. He might say, hey, JB, come here. I want to show you something. And he could allow us to get a glimpse of something on heaven, uh, on earth, if he wanted us to. So I don't think heaven, you know, is like this massive you know, arena where everybody's sitting in the stands, peering over the edge of heaven, looking and watching things unfold on, on earth. But I think our loved ones could, if God so allows, uh, on an isolated case, you know, be given a glimpse of, of what's going on uh, on earth. As far as what they're doing there, I think, I don't know, and here's what I would be doing if I, when I get to heaven. I'm going to spend all of eternity talking to Peter and Paul and Moses and Abraham and Jacob and David and you know, everybody and asking them all the questions that I wondered and just learning what it was like, uh, you know, for them. That, that's what I think I would be doing. And, and yeah, well, this concept that kind of you're alluding to here, I mean, we are the bride of Christ. So um, as a uh, kind of the example being a man and wife type thing, it's not like you dump your wife and, uh, you know, don't include her on a road trip. I, I think Jesus takes us on some road trips and and we're, we're a part of what he's doing. And what, what's your thoughts on that? You think there, there's something to that as his bride? Um, I think that's probably stretching the metaphor a bit uh, in terms of like proximity to him in that sense. Uh you know, I I think that, you know, we are certainly attached to him and that, that special relationship that scripture talks about. But could we, and maybe I missed missed the missed what you were saying here, but could we go on a road trip uh by ourselves or with a few of our friends? Absolutely. I think we can be traveling 
throughout the the you know celestial realm and, and going uh you know in the in the eternal state because remember the eternal state involves an earth which means it involves a uh, you know planets and involves a uh, an atmosphere and it involves you know the stellar uh realm so we could be going from planet to planet star to star investigating researching i mean i think christians who are also astronomers <clears throat> are going to just have the time of their life being able to investigate. And I don't think we necessarily need to be doing it, you know, with our arms wrapped around our Savior. Now, you bring up a good point that that should have gone without saying uh, in my answer that obviously the first person we're going to want to see is our Savior, and we're going to want to look him in the eye, see him face to face. But, you know, we will do that in the clouds. We'll have that reunion, that moment. Um and 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 we'll have unlimited access to him. We can come back and see him again and again every day. But I don't know that we'll necessarily need to be joined at the hip the whole time. Anyone else? Um, um, sorry, Diane? that. No. When we come back, or when when the Lord comes back, and it's after the thousand years, will and there's a new earth. Will we have the technology that we had before? Or we we have all this in our heads. We're, we've learned all this. We, we walk around with a cell phone every day. We do this, all this technology. What is your thought on that? Is it going to be there then? Or is well, it gone? Yeah. So the Lord, of course, uh, comes back, you know, before the millennium. But I, but I know what you're saying. At the end of the millennium, when, when the old earth is destroyed and the new earth is created, um, will we have what technology and things like that? I don't, I mean, all I can do is, is refer to what Paul said, you know, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has in store. So I think it's going to be nothing like what we as fallen mankind have tried to create uh, to try to you know, do things and advance our cause. I think it's it's going to be stunningly different uh, in a good way. I don't see traditional technology as being present in the new heavens and the new earth. Anything else? I've got a question. Okay. Marsha's over here in the corner. You can't see her. Um. Would you mind explaining the difference between a continuationist and a sensationist? And which view do you hold to? Yeah, so first let me ask you a, a question. Uh, what did you do to get put in the corner? When when I was a kid, I, I, if I was in trouble, I got put in the corner. Um, no, I would say uh, the difference is uh, the, the question relates to the uh, the spiritual gifts and what spiritual gifts are normative for today. A cessationist view traditionally believes that there are certain spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit bestowed upon believers in the apostolic age that were revelatory in nature, and that those gifts nat naturally died out as the Word of God became available and was written and completed. His special revelation was complete. So during the apostolic age, when God was still giving new revelation through the pen of the authors of Scripture and through prophets and other ministries, um, we needed those gifts. But once we have the Word of God, which is all sufficient, the written Word of God, some of those gifts were no longer in vogue. Um, so that's the cessationist view. And the continuation view would be that all of the gifts are equally in vogue today. Um, 
my view uh, is somewhat of a, you know, has softened a little bit. I'm not a hardcore cessationist because I've just learned that it's it, we can't really put the Holy Spirit in a box. But in my study of spiritual gifts, you know, if you compare the four passages in Scripture that list the spiritual gifts, which would be 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4, and then you collate them and, and take out the duplicates, you come up with 18 gifts in my estimation. I believe nine of those were apostolic or revelatory in nature, um, and I think that those are not routinely normally given to individuals, but that doesn't mean that God couldn't still do those same things on an isolated case-by-case basis um, if he chooses to do it. We just wouldn't call them spiritual gifts. We'd call them miracles, right? So take tongues, for example. The, the gift of tongues in Scripture is always— in every case, in Acts and Corinthians, uh, the ability to speak in a known but unlearned language, uh, just as if I were to suddenly start speaking fluent, uh, let's say, Russian right now, and having never studied it a day in my life, that would be the closest equivalent to what the gift of tongues was. Um, we have lots of examples throughout church history of people in isolated cases being given the ability in a miraculous sense to speak in a language they'd never studied. Um, by the way, we have examples, not even in a spiritual sense, but in a physiological sense of that happening too. There've been documented medical cases where someone gets hit in the head with a baseball bat and wakes up out of a coma speaking fluent Spanish and has never studied it a day in their life. So, uh, but that's a different thing altogether. So I don't, you know, I don't like to really think in terms of cessation versus continuation. I can tell you that in terms of a practice in the local church, the revelatory gifts are certainly not normative. We, you know, we don't need new revelation today. We have everything we need in in the written pages of Scripture. So no one can stand up and say, "I'm a prophet, and God's given me a new word for you," or "I'm an apostle," or uh, "I'm a, you know, I'm speaking in tongues with new revelation," that kind of thing. Um, but you know, it doesn't. It's not a hill that I would die on necessarily. Um, I certainly reject. You know the the uh, first and second wave charismatic viewpoints of of say Pentecostalism that teaches that tongues specifically are a second blessing or an evidence of salvation that you're not really saved you don't get the Holy Spirit until you speak in tongues that kind of thing that's certainly not consistent with biblical pneumatology and the in the biblical view of that but I wouldn't I'm not going to fight over which gifts have ceased and which ones haven't let's just uh, you know, let's just, you know, try to practice biblical ecclesiology the way the New Testament tells us to. All gifts are for edifying the body, and as long as it's, you know, you know, if God wants to do a miracle and allow someone, for example, healing, we certainly believe God heals today. There's no question about that. Uh, God is in the healing business. Does that mean everybody's supposed to be healed? No. Um, sometimes God in His sovereignty allows people to die and not be healed, um, but people can be healed. But I do not believe that an individual person is going to be given the universal gift of healing so that they can walk around like the apostles did, and whoever they touched or whoever walked under their shadow or touched their handkerchief is going to be healed. I don't believe that gift is normative for today. So, you know, it's a kind of a refinement of of understanding. I just, I wouldn't, you know, be too rigid about the two opposing viewpoints. Okay. All right. Well, kind of in closing, um, just many of us have 
sought out different people online because our churches aren't speaking of what's going on in the world so much. Uh, during the pandemic, everything kind of shut down a bit, and we all we all have different people that we're we have listened to to find out what was going on and having a biblical worldview. So we certainly appreciate your view on on all of those things because you have been steadfast on what the truth is. And um, so what would you say would be, like you had just said before, it wouldn't be a hill I would die on, but what would you start a church, a new church over? And is it worth starting a new church over? Or are you, do you think that we'll be going to home churches? What are your thoughts on some of that end, ending of the church thing? Yeah, great question and a great one to you know to end the uh, the the meeting on. Um, and to clarify, I definitely wouldn't support a church where speaking in tongues, for example, is a prominent practice and something that they do, especially the way it's done today. Because a lot of times, speaking in tongues is gibberish and this random syllabification. That's not biblical at all. The Bible never talks about that. Uh, speaking in tongues was always a known language. And so churches that practice that, I think that's a distraction. It's not what the Bible was talking about. And I would I would not go to that church. Um, but, you know, uh, as far as non-negotiables for me, it always starts with the gospel. If they're not clear on the gospel and accurate, I have no use for them. They're, nothing else matters. That's what matters most. And I wrote an article years ago. You can still find it on our webpage under the devotional section if you go back far enough. And I think we have a search function on there. But I talked about, uh, you know, what matters most and how sadly a lot of people will promote and, you know, study and read the writings and works of people that are dead wrong on the gospel. But they'll say, buddy, you know, they're so good about, you know, managing your finances or marriage counseling or how to raise your children. They're so good about that. And so I'm just, you know, I want to read them because of that. And I go, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Paul says, if you're wrong on the gospel, you're anathema. <laughs> Why would you want to study anything by someone who's been anathematized according to scripture? It just doesn't make sense to me. So, uh, you know, we want to pick a church based on, are they teaching a clear grace-based gospel not a Calvinistic gospel, not one that says you got to repent of all your sins and turn from all your sins and clean yourself up in order to be good enough for God. You want to trust in Christ alone. So that's number one. The gospel should be the first sort of filter that you use. After that, I would say things like, are they practicing a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic? Are they consistently interpreting scripture? Um, which, you know, is going to rule out a lot of churches that tend to, you know, allegorize scripture. Um, are the third one filter that I would use, uh, I would make sure they're preaching the whole counsel of God, which includes the 16% of the Bible that is unfulfilled prophecy. If they never teach about Bible prophecy, they're only teaching 84% of the Bible. Why would you want to go to a church that only teaches 84% of the Bible? Yeah. Uh, and then, Another one that I would add in light of what we've seen recently and in light of the direction of the church and, and the great end times apostasy is what's their view on Romans 13? Because as you alluded to in your question, I think we're fast approaching the time when churches are going to have to decide, do they follow God or do they follow the government? 
And sadly, the pandemic showed us that many churches mistakenly think the Bible teaches we have to obey the government at all costs, even though that's not what Romans 13 says. It doesn't even use the word obey. It uses the word submit. And um, I've, t- I've talked about that at length and did a whole podcast on it recently, which you can look up. But, uh, you know, we are to obey God first. And if that means disobeying the government, so be it. Um, and I think we're fast approaching the time when churches are going to have to do that. So um, I do think I do think that we are heading towards, if the Lord doesn't come back soon, a time when a lot of people are going to have to go underground and, and have house churches. I just, that's the way I feel. Um, the vast majority of, of so-called Christian evangelical churches today are are going woke. They're, uh, they're uh, apostate. Um, I don't mean to sound like Elijah, you know, woe is me, am I alone left, that kind of thing. I think there's a remnant. There always is. And you know, there are good churches, you know, out there, but they're very, very few. They're, you know, they're the minority, the vast minority. So, uh, you know, I, I think you need to, when you start filtering those things out, you know, you could find yourself in a geographic location uh, where, you know, there's no churches within a hundred miles that are getting the gospel right. They're they're not practicing consistent interpretation of Scripture. They're not ever talking about the end times. And they think that they're beholden to the president of our country. Um, I think at that point you've just got to, you know, you've got to go underground. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I thank you for our time with you. It's been great. Yeah, sorry it went longer probably than you planned, but uh, I really appreciate it. I can have these discussions all night. Uh, and uh, my kids texted me about 30 minutes ago that our our dinner was ready. So I'm going to have to eat cold dinner, but I don't care. I'm quite happy to do that because uh, this was very edifying and encouraging uh, to me. So thank you guys for for letting me be a part of it. All right. Well, have a great rest of the night. Stay in touch, uh, Jana and Peggy and, and Jill and everybody. And uh, if you want to do it again sometime, just, just let me know. And feel free to email me, too, if you have follow-up questions. If you agreed with everything I said, email me. If you disagreed, don't email me, okay? All right. God bless you guys. We'll see you soon. Bye.